keep in mind that those who are fans of a specific sport, 7 in 10 Americans don't want to subsidize these stadiums. They don't believe public financing should be involved at all. There's a very strong contingent that would oppose it. And this is another reason why public officials will do just about anything to keep it from going to a public vote. And these team owners will try to avoid going to that referendum because they know the outcome. And this was true in D.C. Something like 69% of D.C. residents at the time opposed the, the Nats ballpark. So it's a widespread opinion. Hi, listeners. I'm Chad Reese, host of the Mercatus Policy Download, and today we're talking stadium subsidies. But first, I want to get to my favorite segment, What's on Tap. As always, thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you've you've got a little twist for me today. Normally, I ask you what's going on at Mercatus, but as our listeners may have just heard, uh, that sound means you're the one opening the beer today. Uh, so we've got a little role reversal. We do. Um, as you know, I just came back from vacation. I was down in Topsail, North Carolina. And so I don't have uh, much idea about what's going on here, but I did visit this awesome brewery, the Salty Turtle in Surf City. And so I thought I'd bring you back a beer and let you tell me about what's going on. Well, I'm glad that I actually paid attention uh, last week so that I'm not caught too flat-footed. So first up, I actually want to take us back to what you teased uh, on our last episode, which was Chuck Blahouse's Medicare for All uh, cost estimate. So you couldn't tell us the number at the time, but now that it's out, can you remind our listeners what the cost of that proposal would be according to Chuck? The cost is almost $33 trillion over 10 years. I was shocked to see that, and I think a lot of people were. So we saw it get a lot of press right out of the gate. People were amazed at at the size of the cost estimate. But what was interesting to me, too, was there was this sort of second wave of attention that was maybe, I think it's fair to say, misinterpreting part of what Chuck had written, right, where people were saying, oh, this study shows that healthcare costs in America will go down. Did you... Did you kind of follow along that as well? I did. I actually, even though I was on vacation, checked in, looked at the coverage. And I think what we're seeing now is now that we have the number, people are really starting to debate what it is that they they want from a health care plan in our country. Yeah. And I would really recommend our, our listeners check out Chuck's Wall Street Journal op-ed on this topic. He kind of went over some of the basics of the study, how he did it, how he came up with his cost estimate. But what I think was really important, too, is he addressed some of those concerns about people who thought that his study said something that it, it didn't really say. So if you're interested in kind of the complete story, I definitely recommend that op-ed. Yeah. And it's I think we're we're in for an exciting debate over the next few months about what healthcare looks like in this country. Uh, we've also got some stuff going on at the bridge. Uh, so I'm working with Salim Firth, who's one of our state and local policy scholars, on a piece about scooters and protected bike lanes. Uh, I'm kind of excited about that. It turns out there's a scooter company that is interested in paying cities and states to build more protected bike lanes. So keep an eye on the bridge for that later this week. Are these like Razor scooters? Or these are those. The uh, bird is one of the companies involved. Okay. These are those scooters that you see popping up. They're kind of like the dockless bike shares, where you get an app on your phone, and then you can you know rent uh. it for I think like a dollar plus a certain amount per per minute that you've got the scooter. Okay, very cool. Yeah. And then last, I want to make sure we're uh, letting our listeners know about Conversations with Tyler, which is another podcast uh, that goes on here at Mercatus. And next week, they've got Michael Pollan on. Uh, He does a lot of writing on nature and food. That's maybe a gross understatement of the portfolio (laughs) of work. A lot of our listeners who have read or heard about The Omnivore's Dilemma might be a little more familiar with his work. Um, But I'm told by reliable sources that it was a funny, enjoyable, and intelligent conversation. 
Awesome. I'll look forward to listening to that. So I don't know if Michael has any thoughts on the record about beer, um, but (laughs) I'm going to transition back to what I brought us today. I like it. We are drinking a Coastline Kolsch from the Salty Turtle. Great name. Yes. uh, It's a brewery in North Carolina, Surf City, just outside of Topsail, which is where I was on vacation. So what do you think? I like it. Uh, I'm already kind of a German beer guy in general, so this is right in my wheelhouse. Uh, it's interesting for a Kolsch. I usually like like that kind of beer because it's like clean, it's light, it's kind of refreshing. It doesn't take a lot of you know thought process. It's not super complex. But this one's actually a little more flavorful. Um, so this is a little bit more of a sipper beer than maybe maybe other Kolsch's that I've had. So I'd give it 3.75 out of 5. I'm a fan. All right. Yeah. I gave this one a 4.25, which is uh, part of the reason I brought it back for you since I liked it so much. Well, thank you for doing so. Prost. Prost. Sports are often a great unifier. They give us arbitrary, sometimes petty rivalries that we can lean into without taking them too seriously at the same time that they bring people together. But sports, particularly at the professional level, can be expensive. Even ignoring things like player salaries, equipment, and an extensive staff, every sports team needs a place to call home, and stadium costs can easily run in the hundreds of millions of dollars. That's not really something most folks worry about, as long as wealthy sports team owners are paying for their own stadiums. But city and state governments increasingly view stadium construction as a form of economic stimulus. As a result, there's a strong temptation to funnel public funds towards these projects, either in the form of direct subsidies or by giving them a tax break. Here to talk about how all of this works, including the pros and the cons of this kind of development strategy, we have some guests who have spent quite a bit of time following the issue. First, we're joined on the phone by Mark Fisher, senior editor with The Washington Post, who covers a range of topics, including some of the economic effects of stadiums. Uh, Specifically, uh, you've written recently on the Washington Nationals ballpark, so that's close to home here. And thanks for calling in, Mark. Absolutely. Happy to be with you. Next up, we have Michael Farron, research fellow here at the Mercatus Center and repeat guest on the show. I'm glad we haven't scared you off too badly yet, Michael. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks, Chad. And we are joined by another first-time guest, and Phil Pott, in the studio with us today. And is a research assistant here at Mercatus who spent a lot of time tracking and writing about stadium financing and its effects on local economies. Glad you could join us, Anne. Thanks for having me. So I just always like to start these conversations, as most of our listeners will know, with kind of a 30,000 foot, let's all get on the same page so we know what we're talking about question. So today I kind of wanted to start with how this process works and why we're even talking about it. So I'm just curious if you guys can kind of help walk me through how we get from sports team says we need a new stadium or we need to move our stadium to, oh my gosh, now there's a stadium and things are happening around it. Well, uh, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very scientific, careful process called blackmail. <laughs> and, what happens, uh, uh, and what happens is that the league, um, helped by the local owner of the franchise, drums up a tremendous wave of fan interest and demand and uh, enlists politicians in this campaign to show that uh, a city a city and its economy can only be saved or improved or expanded by having public financing or public support of one kind or another for a professional sport 
sports arena or stadium. And then we get into all kinds of issues about uh, development of neighborhoods and expansion of the tax base and all of that, and, that, and political battles ensue and battles over development and gentrification take place from there. But it all begins with that uh, very simple uh, campaign of blackmail to try to get the public to pay for something that uh, these big sports uh, franchise owners and leagues um, theoretically could pay for themselves. That's right. And and what we see often is this repeating cycle. It happens across sports. It happens across cities and across leagues. And it's so repeatable that Neil DeMoz has written on it in Field of Schemes. It's It's basically the ownership is claiming that the facility is obsolete. And sometimes they'll neglect maintenance to um, validate that assertion, which is interesting. Then they'll end up threatening to move somewhere else, often a rival city that intimidates public officials. Then they argue that without a state-of-the-art stadium, they can't effectively compete in their league. And they'll go to publish generous and sometimes unrealistic expectations about what the economic development will look like on the other side. And sometimes these firms that create the reports have interests tied to the, the team itself. Then they'll create a deadline forcing the public official's hand and ultimately adjust the goal to exceed the initial projection, which, you know, it exceeds the budget initially. Definitely. And so that Anne's kind of framework and Mark's uh a uh, very technical description of, of how this happens. Um, to give the economist version of this, uh, instead of blackmail, we might call it uh, wishes, rainbows, and unicorns. That the you can somehow find a way to identify a particular industry that is such a boon to the local economy that it is simultaneously, if you invest millions of dollars of public money into it, you end up with a runaway economic effect, spillovers that help additional businesses. But for some reason, despite it being so profitable, it's not actually being invested in by private investors. It's a very unusual and interesting situation, uh, you might say. And there's, uh, as Anne mentioned, uh, Neil DeMouse's book, Field of Schemes, kind of goes into this uh, very well. But there's actually literally dozens of books written about stadium subsidies and a long history of this stretching back to uh, the 1950s and even a little bit before that to the 1920s. And for this entire time, everybody has said essentially, this is a bad idea. This doesn't actually grow the economy. But even though it doesn't make economic sense, it does make a certain amount of political sense. And I think that's why it's such an enduring thing in, in our uh, societal landscape. Okay, so I'm, I'm outnumbered here, it sounds like, but I'm going to roll up my sleeves and, and take three on one here because I was a resident of Southwest DC until, until pretty recently. And so I, I kind of got to see firsthand, those of you listeners who are local will, will realize I'm talking about the area where the Washington National Stadium has been built. And Mark, you, you wrote about this area specifically. So I, I, I watched that neighborhood sort of change and undergo this incredible transformation. There's restaurants, there's bars, you can walk around and feel perfectly safe now. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, you all are saying something that sounds very different from my, what I experienced when I just put on my random D.C. citizen hat, which is we built the stadium where there was literally nothing of economic value that most people would consider. 
And now there's this thriving neighborhood and new apartment buildings are going up and there's a Harris Teeter and they're even getting a Whole Foods. So how do, how do I square that circle? If I lived in that neighborhood and I saw these wonderful things, how can it be this bad? Well, first of all, I mean, Chad, don't count the votes quite yet, because although I very much understand and uh, see the merits of the argument that public investment in stadiums is usually a losing bet, the problem with uh, books like Field of Schemes and other studies of these investments is that they try to come up with one answer for all situations. And it's just it just doesn't work that way. So it's fair to conclude, as most economists have, that when you build a giant football stadium uh, in a, a suburban or uh, exurban setting with nothing but parking lots around it, you are not going to create the kind of development that you've seen in uh, southeastern southwest Washington around Nats Park. And so without that development, you don't have a prayer of making back any of that public investment. On the other hand, certain downtown sports arenas, certain downtown baseball stadiums, uh, when they are creating a wholly new chunk of a city, as happened with the Washington Nationals, as arguably happened in Pittsburgh, Denver, San Francisco, that's a different story because if you can create a whole set of development that otherwise would not have happened, then you can start to say, well, we are expanding the tax base. There is a major boost in the government's revenue as a result of this and in development and jobs for the whole community. And even then, it can be problematic. And even then, you can argue that, uh, well, it would have happened anyway, or you're just displacing that development. It would have happened somewhere else. Washington, D.C., the example of the National Stadium is almost a unique argument against what most economists believe, uh, because what happened there would not have happened otherwise. And it's not just taking entertainment dollars that would have gone to a different part of Washington, D.C. It's bringing those dollars in from other states, in other words, from Virginia and Maryland, where the Washington suburbs are. And that is uh, a net shift of money into Washington, D.C.'s coffers that would not have happened without that public investment in a stadium. So now we get really interesting here and we get to the point of nuance, which is not a, a strong point, I think, in, in today's political conversations. <laughs> that's, that's fair. <laughs> the, so it's fair to say that uh, there is economic development that springs up around stadiums and stadium districts. The real question underlying this that uh, economists would ask is, but what, what's the alternative or what would otherwise happen? And I think that most sports economists that would be looking at this uh, and, and public finance economists would say that the stadium that gets built that's, say, uh, $600 million and enjoys, uh, say, two or $300 million worth of public subsidies for being built probably would have been built anyway. It might not have been a $600 million stadium. It might have been a $400 million stadium or something slightly less opulent. And you would have a lot of the same sort of uh, investments in the entertainment district going in around it. Regardless, you didn't actually need to subsidize it, that it would have occurred regardless. And Little Caesars Arena in Detroit 
is actually probably a pretty good example of this, where the owners of the team and of the arena are essentially the same real estate investors that bought up all the land around the arena, and they are going to be the ones that reap the benefits of the increased development. So it's kind of like you can argue that a stadium is a seed for economic and and entertainment type districts. But the issue is that the people that are getting public money to plant the seed are also reaping the benefits of the spillovers from the seed. And you probably don't need public money to actually uh, subsidize it. And what's important in the Detroit case, I think, especially is the trade-offs. So you may see the development, for instance, in Chad's case in, in Southeast DC, but you're you're neglecting to look at the the trade-offs that would otherwise have occurred. In Detroit, for instance, the local government there decided to funnel some property taxes through the old school district, maintaining it as a shell of sorts to collect these taxes to pay for the new arena for the Pistons and Red Wings. And that trade-off is very direct because those school children aren't seeing those millions of dollars for about 34 years before it goes back into the normal school district operation fund. That's huge. It is. And to provide a little bit more background for our listeners on this, because when we were studying this and and wrote about this uh, in the Detroit newspapers, a kind of a very complex shell game. So Detroit, as most people know, went bankrupt. And the school district in the city went bankrupt along with the the city. And so one way, their way of of getting back to, to whole was to create an entirely new school district that had all of the schools and the teachers and the students in it. And then the old shell st- school district to be the, the holder of all the previous debt and the previous property taxes would continue to go to pay down that debt over time. And then once that debt was paid, that money would switch over to funding the new school district, which the new school district is currently funded with state funds now because the city is busy paying for the debt for the old school district. So what's actually happening is Michigan taxpayers at large are essentially funding the Red Wings and Pistons stadium in this complex shell game, whereas if this uh, property tax revenue was going to pay down the old school debt more quickly, then it could then shift over to funding the public schools in Detroit more quickly. That's actually a fascinating example. I almost feel like we needed a chart just to kind of visualize the, the movement of funds there. Um, so I may have to ask you. To, Talking with your hands doesn't work very well in a podcast. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to draw me something <laughs> later, Michael. Um, but I'm glad that we've kind of gotten to this sort of comparative look, right? Where we're looking at like, okay, here's what it looks like in Detroit. Here's what it looked like in, in DC. And we brought up different sports. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. I, I don't follow the NFL too much, but you can't live in the DC area and not hear something usually not great about the Washington Redskins. And so just me casually following this issue, I read an article, maybe it was just a couple of months ago about a bidding war or something like that between DC, Maryland, and Virginia. And I guess there are policymakers who are interested in stopping this kind of bidding war. So maybe we can kind of shift from the baseball stadium here to, to a different sport. Do we see the same kind of dynamics between sports? Is this again a case where DC is maybe kind of a, in a unique position because you've got three very interconnected regions? Uh, or, or can we learn something more broadly about the issue from the Redskins example? Well, the Redskins example is is actually a great example of why these investments are can be can be just so 
stupid on their face, right? So, yeah, I mean, football stadiums by their nature are so enormous uh, and require so much parking that the kind of development that the advocates for these kinds of investments make is, I mean, you can't, you can't even look at it with a straight face. Uh, what happens is almost all football stadiums are surrounded by vast fields of parking uh, that make any uh, pedestrian-friendly retail uh, hotel development impossible. And so there's almost no way you can recoup that investment around a football stadium. That's true of some baseball stadiums too, especially in suburbs. It's really the only places you can even begin to make the argument for these kinds of investments are in downtown indoor sports arenas for basketball and hockey and and some urban uh, baseball stadiums. And even then, really, you only begin to see benefits when it's on the edge of development or in some previously uh, deeply depressed kind of area. Uh, so it's not just a question of geography. Uh, it is a question of, of which sport and what kind of facility they need. And in the end, even then, you can't tell going into uh, these political debates exactly how these things are going to play out. Miami is a good example of a downtown sports arena that is a success as far as being a, a running business, but it has produced no ancillary development around it. And so, you know, if you're looking at how worthwhile that public investment was, you'd have to say, well, really didn't do much uh, at all. Whereas in the district, that Nationals Park example, uh, you've seen a doubling of the value of residential and commercial property. So you're getting all kinds of new taxes coming in that you didn't have before that can support uh, programs for the poor, for schools, etc. Even though the financing of the stadium took away some of that very same money uh, because the city has a, a hard cap on how much it can borrow each year. And if, uh, if 600 million of that is going to the baseball stadium, that's money that's not being used to build schools, that's not being used to build a homeless shelter and so on. And I think that you brought up something that I think is a really relevant point that the the vast parking lots around most stadiums are definitely an inhibitor to surrounding development. And so DC might have one of the like you said one of the best opportunities for this kind of surrounding development to happen around a stadium because it has established mass transit lines that if you build the stadium near one of the stops and the one that stop happens to be in a uh, lower income under what economists might call an underutilized area, uh, especially because a lot of the area around Navy Yard was was vacant lots, obviously, uh, before the, the Nat Stadium went in. You, you could make that argument that there it does help drive a local entertainment district. The only issue regarding that, I would say then too, is that uh, especially in the DC case, it's kind of interesting to go back through the history and look at what stadiums have been here and what teams have been here and, and what they've done. Mark, you've written some some really good articles about this in the past. Um, I was reading one uh, from 2007 earlier. It's actually the article that's listed on Wikipedia as the source for uh, Wikipedia's article on this. So the Redskins moved out of RFK Stadium on the east side of D.C. for the first season in 97. And by 2007, the they moved to FedEx Field in uh, Maryland, uh, just about six miles away. And by 2007, the team owners were already in talks with DC to subsidize a new stadium to try to come back <laughs> at that point, just 10 years later. Um, and right. so it's possible that it, that might be beneficial 
in terms of increased taxes for D.C. versus Maryland or Arlington, Virginia or, or Alexandria, Virginia versus D.C. or Maryland. But the problem is, is if you look at it from rather than a very localized public finance perspective and you zoom out to a, a regional metropolitan area economic perspective, that's where it starts making less and less sense. And that's one of the reasons why local leaders in Maryland and D.C. And, and Virginia as well have tried to come together and say, OK, we don't want to subsidize a new Redskin stadium. I think in part it's because of the, the controversy over the, the Redskins name, but they tried to create some sort of regional compact that ended up falling apart, but there's been repeated attempts to do this. And that is one of the ways to avoid essentially misusing taxpayer funds because the stadium is going to be built somewhere. There's some place that's going to result in an economic development. And uh, essentially paying a couple hundred million dollars to to move it a couple miles from one side of a political border to another side of the political border really makes absolutely zero economic sense. You mentioned regional compacts. I'm kind of curious. It sounds like the one for this specific example in the D.C. area sort of fell apart. Are there examples where that has worked, where states or cities have gotten together and said, hey, we just agree not to get involved in these bidding wars? As far as our research has so far shown – not really. The only places that has sort of happened is when a local vote is taken on whether or not taxpayer funds should be used to subsidize a professional sports team, like what happened in San Diego a couple of years ago. And often uh, in that case, what happens is the local voters say they don't want to subsidize it. And then either the team uh, grins and bears it or in the case of San Diego, moves to L.A. So it's it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma and it comes about because there is a scarcity of teams, that there is a an arbitrarily arbitrary limit on the number of teams and that creates a situation where cities are competing between each other to try to attract a team or to keep a team. And that gives the, the league and the team owners more bargaining power over the city than they would otherwise have. So it is sort of a, a cartelized system that is resulting in this. Keep in mind that even among people who support um, the NFL or, or those who are fans of a specific sport, seven in 10 Americans don't want to subsidize these stadiums. They don't believe public financing should be involved at all. There's a very strong contingent that would oppose it. And this is another reason why public officials will do just about anything to keep it from going to a public vote. And these team owners will try to avoid going to that referendum because they know the outcome. And this was true in D.C. Something like 69 percent of D.C. residents at the time opposed the, the Nats ballpark. So it's it's a widespread opinion. It is. And I think what the leagues have always counted on uh, to counter that is the fact that fans being fans are louder. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and so, so uh, you know, the good example is Tampa, Tampa Bay, where public vote said, no, we're not paying for a new stadium for the Tampa Bay Rays. Nobody goes to the games. They're terrible. Uh, we don't want them here anyway. And and so no new stadium was built. And so the, the Tampa Bay Rays continue to play in a, a decrepit, old, uh, outdated dome in St. Petersburg. And uh, it's a failed franchise. And so here's where things, I think, I think the tide is changing. And the ability of teams and leagues to use fans to control where stadiums get put 
input and to blackmail uh, local governments into ponying up or state governments to, to ponying up for uh, stadiums is really waning. And uh, some of the uh, commissioners, Commissioner of Baseball, has talked about this lately, uh, where he's saying that their leverage to get public investment is not what it used to be. They cannot rely on that any longer. And so you're beginning to see here and there in each sport the occasional Jerry Jones who builds the Dallas Cowboys stadium with his own money. You know, we've seen it a couple of times in baseball now, and I think that's going to become more and more the case. In, in the D.C. soccer stadium example, having had that that 70% of the uh, population that was opposed to building, to having public financing of the baseball stadium, when it came time for a soccer stadium, the D.C. Council said, no, we're not doing that. And so uh, they went through a couple of owners of the team and finally came up with one who was willing to pay for a stadium himself. The city still put in money for the infrastructure, the the streets and the sewer sewer lines, that sort of thing. But the stadium was paid for by the team. And that, uh, I think, is becoming more and more the case around country. I'm relieved to hear that you're optimistic, Mark, because I don't balance out my own pessimism. (laughs) So you actually described one of the things that our research has dug into more and more, and that is that the costs of a stadium are often hidden. And uh, if they can't get an outright subsidy or or a a loan from the city, they'll often get a loan guarantee or they'll get uh, free land or uh, the often what ends up happening is the land and the stadium are owned and operated by some sort of quasi public stadium authority uh, that means that the team just rents it for a nominal amount, like a dollar a year or something. And what that means is that they manage to avoid paying property taxes on that very lucrative piece of real estate, especially once all of the entertainment district goes in around it, an extremely lucrative piece of real estate. And so there's, uh, I think they're just getting shiftier and slyer about the ways that they are getting government authority uh, to be used to serve private purposes. I think another hidden cost that people fail to realize is there is that the municipal bonds that are used for these projects often are federally tax exempt, which means Americans across the nation are actually paying for it. It's not just people in Las Vegas, for example, paying for this extremely expensive Raiders stadium. It's people in Massachusetts paying for the very same thing. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that uh, a op-ed that you and I wrote last uh, January regarding the failed opportunity in the tax reform bill, because initially it was actually part of the tax reform that it, you would no longer be allowed to use tax federal tax-exempt municipal bonds to fund sports stadia and other kinds of facilities. And that actually goes back to uh, when the income tax and when our tax laws majorly changed in the early 1900s. There was a couple stadiums built with public funds uh, in the 1920s and 30s, but they were built essentially to host the Olympics or an attempt to fund an Olympics bid. It was uh, L.A. Coliseum and Cleveland's Stadium. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. And then uh, Chicago Soldier Field, I believe. But nothing else happened until the 1950s. And I don't think many people really know this history. It's really interesting. So the Boston Braves moved from Boston to, I believe, Minneapolis because uh, Boston Braves were actually the original baseball team in Boston. But the Red Sox came on later on and got to be more popular. And the Boston Braves were a failing 
team. So they essentially jumped ship and moved to a different city. But at that time, you had two competing baseball leagues that tried to each locate a team to compete for local fans in the biggest cities. And then after uh, Minneapolis built the Braves a stadium and then uh, they were there for about 10 or 15 years and then jumped ship and went down to Atlanta, uh, where they still are, that kind of spawned this enormous surge in teams moving all over the country to publicly built publicly financed stadiums. And eventually what we had was uh, with the, the different leagues merging, we no longer have competition. We have one single cartelistic league that inhibits the expansion of the league so that cities are constantly competing in order to try to attract professional sports. That's, I think, the, a big piece of the equation right there. Well, I can't say I'm happy because I was really excited when I was listening to Mark and he was giving me all these like, you know, tide is changing, things are improving, commissioners. And so I was I was like, oh, man, we're going to wrap up on a positive point. And thanks. Thanks for bursting Leave my it to bubble, Michael. Michael and Ann. <laughs> I, I did even jump into the 120 minor league stadiums that are uh, all trying to get. You are a ray of sunshine. Uh, well, I, I was—I've been on a—I've been on a roll. I have been ending these these episodes on on positive notes. So I'm just going to pretend like you all didn't say anything and 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 just hang on that. There's at least one sports commissioner who's acknowledged the problem, and and maybe we have a, a policy response with these regional compacts and we make them work. But we are just about out of time, so I will have to to wrap us up there. I do want to make sure, since you all have been following this issue and have written a ton about it for many years now, that we we give our listeners an opportunity to to catch up with your work. So we'll just uh, we'll start with with you on the phone, Mark, and either a, you know, a website or a, a Twitter handle, wherever's the easiest place for our listeners to go and, and, and keep up with you. Sure. Uh, you can find my work for the Washington Post at uh, WashingtonPost.com slash Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R. Great. And uh, Anne? Yep. You can find me on Twitter at Anne, A-N-N-E underscore Philpot, P-H-I-L-P-O-T. Great. And Michael? Yeah, I'm on, obviously on Twitter as well. Uh, Michael D, as in David, Farren, F-A-R-R-E-N. And then you can also tune in weekly to uh, see the latest stadium subsidy news written on by Ann and myself at Mercatus's uh, Bridge blog. That's right. So whenever you guys want to see the uh, the latest example, good, bad, mixed, Michael and Ann are, are tracking those pretty closely. So thank you to all our guests. Uh, I think I learned a lot today, both positive and negative examples. Uh, we'll leave it to our listeners to, to suss out how they feel about the issue. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or shoot me an email at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu with any questions, complaints, comments, or episode ideas. And thanks as always to our listeners. We'll see you next time. 